This episode of Health Explorers is sponsored by The Range. Healthcare is rife with rules, regulations, and multiple stakeholders. For early stage health tech companies, the complexity often exceeds their budget, experience, and industry knowledge. We created The Range to help startups navigate this complexity by making it easy and affordable to access world-class advisors. Our network of advisors spans all functions of a growing startup, from sales to regulatory to reimbursement and more. The Range, on-demand access to the best health tech advisors. To learn more, visit therangeadvisors.com. Welcome to Health Explorers, hosted by Michael Kish and Dr. Jay Shaw. On this episode of Health Explorers, Dr. Jay Shaw and I speak with Adrian James, the co-founder of Omada Health, a pioneer in digital therapeutics and virtual care focused on improving the management of chronic conditions like diabetes, hypertension, and MSK. Adrian graduated with degrees in engineering from Stanford and then spent almost a decade at the design firm IDEO, eventually becoming the lead of their medical products group. In 2011, he co-founded Omada Health, where he was president until 2020 and remains a member of their board of directors. Since its inception, Omada has raised almost $500 million in venture capital and improved the quality of life of a million people. Since leaving Omada, Adrian has become a strategic advisor to a number of high-growth health tech startups and has now set his sights on food system reform. In this episode, we discuss Adrian's motivation to create Omada and what he learned during his journey building one of the most successful and innovative digital health companies of the last decade. Adrian, welcome, and thanks for being part of Health Explorers. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. So I've known you for probably the last five, six years. I have kind of a good background on your history and, and certainly have always been impressed by sort of the thoughtfulness that you've brought not only to Amada, but to the, the other work that you've done in your career. Maybe we can just jump into the first question and, and kind of get started here. So you went to Stanford. I think you got a couple of degrees in mechanical engineering there. And, and I also know you were a big, big fan of Ultimate Frisbee. I think we've had that discussion before. The Stanford Ultimate Frisbee team is you know, world-class from what I understand <laughs> from the many people who played on it. And I know that when you left Stanford, you took a couple of opportunities, but eventually you settled in at IDEO, eventually becoming the domain lead for their medical products group. What was it that attracted you to medical devices, medical products in the first place? Well, my father was an ER doctor. And if I really go back to the early days, I think that was influential. There were a lot of conversations about injuries and bodies, you know, around me when I was growing up. I remember being a little kid and not being afraid of blood, being very proud of that when I was about eight years old. <laughs> but if I think about the connection between grad school and IDEO, there was a very specific class I took called medical device design. And it felt like this miraculous application of mechanical engineering into a setting that I really cared about. I couldn't believe that these, these expert physicians and specialists were taking us grad students so seriously. I think that was also a moment where I realized that cross-disciplinary work is, is just the best because you, in this example, you can take someone who spent their entire life in a cl clinical setting being an expert there and then combine them with someone who, in my case, you know, I was just a grad student, but somebody with some engineering and design skills, and you can unlock so much discovery. And then finally, I love mechanical design, but some engineering work can feel so impersonal. And medical device design is deeply personal, you know, and as a designer in that space, you get to connect with people at their most vulnerable and intimate moments. So I think those factors made me very interested in applying to this particular studio. At the time, it was called a studio, but a, a practice within IDEO called the health practice. I think that was probably, honestly, what what led me to to even be as interested in IDEO as I was. What was your favorite project at IDEO that you got to work on? Well, there was a project 
I did for Edwards Life Sciences in the first few years of being there. It was not a, it was probably a six month to 12 month project. I was also involved in multi-year projects that had more depth and more manufacturing design involved. But this particular project with Edward Life Sciences was uh, about designing a heart valve installation device. And as part of the design work, I got to see a, a cabbage coronary artery bypass graft surgery. And I was standing, you know, right there as they opened the person's chest, as they, you know, removed the saphenous vein and cauterized the closures. And I just remember feeling absolutely overwhelmed and, but also very privileged to be drawn into such a complicated environment. And you, you were still not scared of blood at that point. I was still not scared of blood, but they told me, they said, if you, you didn't pass out in the <laughs> right. they said, if I'm you stand on this platform, this chair. close to the patient, you have to promise us you're not going to faint. Yes. And fall right. into the body. Don't worry. The circulating nurse, I'm sure had a chair ready. Sure, they did. I vaguely remember do. Jay, right. you would know this, yeah. but I vaguely remember that I was up on this platform and there may have even been handholds or something mm -hmm. just, just to make, you know, darn sure that the viewers didn't collapse into the surgical environment. That's very important yeah. for sterile procedure. I would have, I would have fainted like face first. <laughs> that, that would not, I would not have made it through that. Yeah, it, it is. Well, it's not even if you're scared of blood, just standing there for a long time, you know, it just kind of happens sometimes. So you spent, a, it sounds like almost a decade at IDO and then you left and started Amada. And sort of what was your, what was the inspiration? What was the catalyst that, that drove you to start something new and from scratch? I've thought about this a lot. When, when you're in the early days of starting a company, then you've achieved nothing. And there's no reason to have an origin story. And nobody asks. And then you go years forward and people say, well, how did you get started? And yes, you say, oh, I don't know. And you go more years forward and people say, well, how did you get started? And you start piecing together this story. And it's never as neat or tidy as it sounds. But in my case, I think the conditions, the boring answer is that the conditions were right, where I had loved my time at IDEO, but I was ready for a change, number one. Number two, I had started becoming really interested in the startup environment. And I started studying uh, companies in the Bay Area who were, who were you know, early companies um, in the health space. At the same time, in the background, my dad's health had been going downhill. He was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2003, uh, which was two years into my time at IDEO. And so for these, you know, five years at IDEO, his health was going downhill and he died in 2008. So over those five years, I was very involved in health-related work. And this combination of really caring about health, being re a bit ready for a change away from a consultancy, and then finally, I would say the catalyst was meeting my co-founder, Sean. Sean Duffy joined IDEO as an intern when I was probably in my ninth year there. And he immediately brought a breath of fresh air to the health practice. He's an extraordinarily creative and positive and resilient person. And the two of us were put on an exploratory project. I don't think the leadership at IDEO actually believed that this project would then become a company and we'd spin out. But we started working on it together and we had so much fun. And I remember within weeks of working together on that project with Sean, I came home to my wife and I said, you know, if I decide to do something other than IDEO, I'd want to do it. I want to do a project of this kind, you know, and make it real and work with this guy, Sean. He's so fun to work with. That's awesome. And so the company was founded in the early part of 2011. You were part of the first first batch of companies that came out of the Rock Health Accelerator, which which is kind of fascinating to think about now. What was it like back in 2011 from a, a digital health perspective? The landscape, kind of the energy. I mean, obviously things have advanced pretty dramatically over the course of the last decade plus, but you were sort of there at, you know, the relative beginning. What was that experience like? 
Well, in early 2011, there was no digital health industry as, as far as we knew. We were very lucky in retrospect to find Rock Health at that time and discover a community. We used to joke about this, but when we would invite potential customers or investors to the Rock Health offices, we'd book the conference rooms in advance and we'd lean back in our chairs and we'd think like, look at this conference room. We have a conference room already. We haven't even started the company yet. To be slightly more serious, Rock Health did definitely com confer a, an air of legitimacy and identity and community and purpose to the early, the early entrepreneurs in digital health. I remember when we were starting, we couldn't even figure out for one, what to name the company. Should we name it Omada or Omada Health? Of course, we had a, a bunch of other options as well. But I remember debating, is it redundant and unnecessary to put the word health into the name? I remember that when we were first hiring our health coaches, there was no such thing as a health coach. And I was on the internet looking up different terms for these you know, personal assistants uh, or rather kind of personal trainers in the health domain and what we should call them. And initially, because we were basing our approach off of this clinical trial and the clinical trial used the term facilitators, initially we actually hired our health coaches as quote unquote facilitators. And in the code base and in the UX, they were called facilitators. And after a few months, we were like, oh my goodness, that's the worst word. It's an <laughs> awful word. <laughs> we would look at each other, we'd say, facilitator. It doesn't and roll off the it tongue. It does no. not roll off the tongue. So yeah. we ditched the word facilitator and thought, you know what, let's just go with this fuzzy sounding term, health coach, even though nobody will really know what it is. And here we are years later. The number of times I've said health coach since 2011. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly, you know, you were the first in the space, couldn't even find people that had the right definition. And the first company that, that probably used the term digital therapeutics as well, most likely. And if you can obviously contrast that to traditional healthcare, your model of care delivery, dramatically different. And this is well before sort of the COVID-19 pandemic and the acceleration of sort of virtual care in most traditional care systems. So go back to that time, you know, over a decade ago, in your opinion, like what were the major differences between how your philosophy of Omada and the philosophy of really the rest of healthcare and how that was delivered? Well, in again, back to 2011, broadly speaking, the care model for diabetes and diabetes prevention was you get a pamphlet from your doctor and your doctor urges you to come back to the hospital for a checkup in six months. And I'd say in pre-diabetes specifically, the message was, congrats, you don't have diabetes, but try to lose a few pounds. What was happening at that time was big systems and big payers were seeing the impending costs of diabetes but realizing that the structures in place to serve people were severely lacking. And there were early efforts to build more effective methods of diabetes prevention. And in fact, Vanguard at the time, this was like the, the front lines of innovation, was a brick and mortar approach being piloted by United Health. They had found the same clinical trial that we found, and they were trying to replicate it in an in-person setting by getting groups of people together in education classes at YMCAs. They were really modeling this intervention, again, after the same landmark clinical trial that we were modeling ours, but they were trying a brick and mortar approach. And even at that time, I'm pretty sure they knew that it wasn't going to scale and that they would have to try a more virtual approach. But there was really, as you say, there was no model to do so. There was no evidence base. There were no technology platforms, I think, capable of delivering that kind of intervention. And we believed that we could replicate all the good parts of that clinical trial and the landmark evidence base without taking on all the costs. And we could make it more convenient and engaging and accessible. And that's what we set out to do. When the PREVENT program 
first launched, if I remember right. But it seems like relatively quickly, you guys began to first focus on self-insured employers. So kind of first enterprise customer segment. And then you began to work with health plans. Maybe kind of walk us through that sequencing and why you started going direct to patient and you know, ultimately why you made the transition to more of an enterprise channel model. We always believed that the enterprise model was the way to go because we believed we we're delivering better care at a lower cost. And that will, as we scale that impact, it'll appeal to the payers in the system. And however, you're right, in those early days, I believe that we thought a PR splash when following our Series A fundraising that that press might generate some direct-to-consumer participation and enrollment, which could get us users faster for iterating the product. I think that was our thinking at the time. I don't believe that we were considering that as a business model or as a direction for the company. But you're right. I do remember, actually, when I think about it now, we had this, we had our fingers crossed that when the news, you know, hit the wire that we were we had raised money and we were bringing this amazing new prediabetes program to the market that all these consumers would get interested and they'd sign up and spend their own money. And what we saw was that there was a small, you know, segment of people who decided to take that opportunity, but we, we could tell right away that the main, that our principal approach was going to be through enterprise healthcare. And in terms of the sequencing, that was that proved to be fairly interesting for our go-to-market. We realized that there is an interesting interplay between the, the big self-insured employers and the health plans, where the, the health plans, of course, end up caring very much what their largest customers want. And their largest customers are the big self-insured employers. And the self-insured employers lean on the health plans to determine health savings, opportunities, bundled solutions, the newest offerings out there in the market. So our approach for sequencing was to find the cutting edge self-insured employers with respect to employee benefits, describe our programs, the outcomes data, get their attention, get their interest. And after we would contract directly with a few of those big self-insured employers, we'd turn around to them and say, hey, you like working with us. Could you you know, tell your health plan about us, make sure that we are connected with them to make the whole billing side more efficient and effective, and also gradually show them how much we're saving in terms of, uh, of costs, you know, claims. And then the health plans themselves became interested in us in incorporating us into solutions that they would then offer to, to their employer base. And so it was kind of a, a flywheel of sorts that we got started by working with the self-insured employers. Interesting. We called this our kind of pull-through approach to the market where, again, we'd go out and we'd find the most interested self-insured employers in a given region, and then we'd roll that influence up to the health plans, then we'd go to the health plans and contract directly with them. I would envision that even the most progressive self-insured employers probably had a couple of questions for you. And one was engagement, and knowing that that was probably one of the biggest issues that they were seeing was they were offering programs or the health plan had a program, people weren't engaging. And they obviously understood that engagement had a direct relationship with outcomes and improvements. Did you, did you find by at least going direct to patient for a little period of time, you kind of had a seed base of users where you could show the self-insured employers, like, look, people are willing to pay out of pocket for this. And here are the the statistics around their satisfaction and engagement with the program? Very good question. We initially believed that we could generate enough direct-to-consumer interest in certain areas that we could then turn around and use that interest to compel the employers to buy. But it didn't really play out that way. Hmm. I believe Yammer had used that model. Very different kind of company, of course, but I think that is a proven model, especially as a, a turn from... Yeah, direct-to-consumer to enterprise sales. In Omada's case, it, it was super important that we had some early participation just to drive the data, as you say, and show the engagement data to employers. 
We did that through a series of pilot studies more, and we use those pilot studies and the research from those more than participation kind of through the front door, direct to consumer. How did, I mean, the program obviously, you know, enterprise or direct to consumer, you know, lived in a different space than traditional healthcare, as you described, you know, interacted with your diabetes patients. And although you did good amount of research, lots of it, and had the pilots and had the, some data, at least in the initial phases, sort of what was the reaction of healthcare community, the traditional sort of endocrinology, diabetes, primary care sections to, to Omada's program? And how did, how did you, you know, garner that trust and credibility with them? The fact that we were following the quote-unquote recipe of the diabetes prevention program clinical trial was extraordinarily helpful. I remember almost every meeting in the early days involved, you know, somebody with clinical with a clinical background. We would mention the DPP and they would start nodding. They'd heard of the DPP in med school. If they didn't remember the details of the trial exactly, they did remember that it was a randomized controlled trial. They remember that it was, you know, gold standard evidence. They would remember that life, the lifestyle arm, the lifestyle intervention arm had been quite successful. And so I don't think we could have started the company without that landmark trial, honestly, because the burden of creating new evidence would have been too high. The cost, the cost of that would have been too high. Instead, we would go into a sales environment or a clinical environment and we would say, hey, you know, don't trust us, trust this landmark clinical trial, one of the most famous trials of all time that's been replicated now in many different formats and environments, countries around the world. Trust that data and then believe us that we can replicate the design of the intervention, even though we're doing it in a different format. And then we'd say, and not only will we replicate the most significant parts of that approach to diabetes prevention, but our approach will also have all these other advantages. We're gonna be more convenient, more engaging, more personal, more accessible. And so we think that we can generate outcomes that are as good as what they did in the trial, but we can do it at a much lower cost. Mm -hmm. So that, that was, that was, totally critical. I think what helped us then as we grew and we grew beyond diabetes prevention is that we just kept publishing and publishing. We're up to about 27 peer-reviewed studies. And I feel like that approach and ethos is, was, was critical to growing the company. Yeah. When I first got exposure to Omada, I want to say it was like 2016, 2017, and you would go to your website at that time and it was very, very clear that this concept of evidence base was sort of central to your guys thinking about, I think not only doing what was right for the, the participant, you know, making sure that they could trust the program and the program had been, you know, shown to work. But I think it, it also appeared like this was a way for a, a Silicon Valley startup to also demonstrate its credibility and to build trust with traditional healthcare by being both transparent, but also, you know, having a volume of studies that were available on your website. And I do want to pay homage to that because at Actia, we, we literally took your templates of how you presented your studies and we replicated that for the 29 studies that, that we had done. And cause you just, you just were, did a fantastic job of both having this very lightweight, but palatable summary that kind of highlighted all the critical facts. And then behind it was the, you know, 14 page, 15 page research study that was in nature or wherever. And it, it just was a brilliant piece of marketing, not to dismiss it as marketing only, but it really, I think, separated you guys. And it, it allowed people to buy into what you were doing, that it was based on, you know, real science and evidence. And it wasn't just, you know, healthcare is broken and, and we're a bunch of smart guys who have a better solution to this. Where, where did that kind of come from, that thought process? And, and how early in the creation of the business did you guys sort of center on that as a big part of your strategy? Well, first of all, thank you, because 
you never know when you're first building something what's going to work and you don't know who will be inspired by it. So it's fun to hear stories like that. We, right off the bat, we knew that we had to demonstrate evidence of what I would call our particular translation. So we got a lot of support from the CDC. And in fact, they're, they have a division of diabetes translation at the CDC. The director there, Ann Albright, had encouraged us to you know, stay close to the clinical evidence, make sure that we stayed close to the CDC and what their guidelines are or were for programs of that type. And we were also kind of inspired, honestly, by some of the skepticism early on. Although the clinical community would know the DPP, the investor community would not. And I remember so many conversations, early pitch moments, where we would go through our full pitch and then you know, some VC would kind of lean back on their chair and say, you guys seem very passionate, but I just don't believe that people can actually change their habits. And we'd walk out of the pitch meeting and, you know, go back and we'd sit in the car. We'd think, you know, I, I just don't think we're ever going to convince those guys. Let's, let's try someone else. And that on one hand, that excitement about trying to build a new evidence base for a new kind of intervention drove our dedication to clinical research. On the other hand, I think just as powerfully, it was the fact that we were selling to this enterprise healthcare environment. And we would have to convince a medical director at a health plan that we were legitimate. And the first thing they would say is, you know, show us your studies, show us your peer-reviewed studies. And so one by one, we, you know, we started cranking them out. We hired some amazing clinical leadership at the company. Every year we'd include funding for research. We would carefully review the research plans for the year and make sure that the, the clinical research plan was in close coordination with the R&D development plan so that we didn't end up at odds there. All those factors were in play. I think another reason was that, you know, we now, OMADA now helps people with prediabetes, diabetes, hypertension, you know, mental health, musculoskeletal conditions. But when we started, we were in prediabetes only. And prediabetes has so much overlap with the ideas of wellness and the wellness space. And the wellness space has so much false promise and fluff. So we thought that's just another reason to establish a peer-reviewed evidence base so we can really be credible and stand out. And I think finally, maybe the last thing, we were pricing our prediabetes program on outcomes. And as we continued building other programs, we would price them on, on outcomes as well, on engagement and outcomes. And generating clinical impact data was pretty important for us to even know what was working best in our own approach. And furthermore, of course, we wanted to show that research to our customers. Yeah, just to kind of close on this, I do, I mean, I think Omada has had a, a wide ranging impact on how we, we think about care delivery now. And certainly it's had a wide ranging impact on sort of the digital health community, given the number of companies who sort of leveraged mm. what you guys built and used it as a starting point to build other companies focused sometimes on the same conditions, oftentimes on different conditions. But I, I do think one of the biggest legacies is that you guys really thought about doing things the right way to the best interests of, of the participant. And I think you showed to other startups the importance of being thoughtful and being evidence-based. Because it really is, if you go back to that time, if you think of it before and after, it just felt like a sea change in the amount of evidence and the prominence of that evidence that was being communicated and also I think required, like I think you guys also kind of conditioned the market, whether it's investors or self-insured employers or whatever to like expect that I need to see this type of research before I'm gonna take a company seriously, much less engage with them and, and purchase whatever solution they've built. So just one of the many areas I think you guys had an incredibly powerful and formative effect. Well, thank you. Challenges abound, as as we all know, in startup world and early stage companies and later stage as you grow. So just thinking back, looking back at your journey, you can maybe pick out one or two things or, or times that was 
more challenging than you expected, much more difficult, or conversely, much easier. You expected something to be super difficult and something worked out very, very easily in an unexpected way. Well, what's always hard is raising money. And it's, it's a pain in the ass for everyone. And it takes so much time and it's so distracting. And I think when you're looking in from the outside, it looks like people are just going along running their company. And then all of a sudden they raise another round and then they just make some progress and they just raise another round. Yeah. <laughs> but of course on the inside, it's not like that at all. On the inside, every single financing round at best, it's a struggle and a distraction, but more typically it's just a tremendous amount of work and it feels to you as the entrepreneur, it feels like, how can people not believe in this? We're trying to make the world a better place. We've got a business model. We've got so much potential. Why do we have to do so much work just to convince people to, to throw us a dollar? So I just have to mention that because again, looking in from the outside, it, it can often look easier than it is. But I kind of expected fundraising to be hard. I think what I didn't expect to be hard was the absolute essential nature of focus in a growing company and how hard it is to lose focus or to have in the spirit of optimism and ebullience and energy and opportunity, how, frankly, how easy it is to fall for the trap of saying yes to too many things, to trying too many new things at once, and how insidious the downside of that is. Uh, it's not always obvious, I think, what, how, how much of a problem a lack of focus is. Because it can feel like you're doing, like you're busy and you're getting things done. But quietly inside your company environment, different people will say, you know, we're getting exhausted. Um, we feel distracted. We're not all rowing in the same direction. And you realize as a founder and as a leader in the company that, you know, one of your most important jobs and painful jobs is just to say no all the time. Like, yes, that sounds like a great idea. No, we do not have the resources to do it this year or yes, it would be wonderful. Our, our users would love that feature, but no, we're not going to add that feature. Another thing, another challenge that I didn't expect was trying to get a company, a young company over the hump from what I would call a family culture to a team culture. And I could talk for hours just about this topic, but when you're, when you're just starting, you're also emotional. You're, you're in it together. You're, you're working 16 hours a day, blood, sweat, and tears. And it feels like your, your employees and your colleagues, they feel like family and all the good parts of family, it, total trust and camaraderie and dedication. And then after a year or a couple of years, you realize that those family norms are actually the norms that are getting in your way and they're making it hard to let go of people who are no longer a fit and they're getting in the way of really good org structure and they're getting in the way of appropriate hierarchy and, dec and decision making. But to make that change, it's not just like you pull a bunch of new levers. You have to pull up the very fabric of the culture and the emotion and the relationships that held you in place before. So that I've spent a lot of time in my advising roles, just coaching founders and company leaders on how to grow from family rituals and norms to, you know, world-class team, team-based rituals and norms. A couple more things, because I could go forever on this question. What was also way harder was just building the darn company. Sean and I would often joke that this, this innocent phrase called company building, you know, it wasn't on the list of entrepreneur skills or, or the things that everybody cares about, but forecasting, contracting, pricing models, scaling operations, designing org structures, trying to go from one product to multiple product lines, being data-driven without losing, you know, a grip on just common sense and design intuition. Those cycles represent 99% of the work we did over the last 13 years. 
And the one the one percent of the work, which I'll switch now to things that were easier than expected, is that I'm a designer and I worked at IDEO and I know how important great design is. But it turns out that certain elements of design, like idea generation, are easy, relatively easy. I mean, especially compared to building. Somebody told me once that as a founder, you'll generate 10,000 great ideas within the first year of your company. And then after 10 years of building that company, you'll be lucky to see 100 of those come into existence. And I found that to be true. Idea generation was easy and building was hard. And then finally, I don't take this for granted, but I think for Omada, I think that culture and maintaining our sense of purpose and mission was easier than it is for, for some founders and some companies. I just think the space that we were in and the way we got started, the way we hired our first, you know, really key employees started us off on, a, on an employee culture that self-reinforced as it grew. And I don't take that for granted at all, but I always feel like we had a pretty steady, pretty stable culture, you know, throughout the, the growth of the company. And it was a very, very powerful, powerful enabler for, for what we built. One of the things I was always impressed with was, you know, whether I was talking to you or another member of the Amada team, or I was on the website or the brand, and I'll use that as kind of manifestation of the culture, but just, it was always so crisp and consistent. It was always about, you know, a human being and how do you help that human being ultimately sort of become healthier and, and more successfully manage, you know, some, some difficult conditions that they're suffering from. And it was, it was amazing that you could watch the growth of the company, but that, that central concept remained consistent, even to today when I was on the website, it's like still there. And yet so many companies, you know, they start with that kind of core idea or that core sort of belief. And then it, it, it kind of gets you get distracted from it or you get too corporate or, but it is really, that was the thing. When I looked at you guys in the relative context of who you were, you know, inspiring, competing against, it was always fascinating to come back. It was like, oh, well, Omadi equals this. And it still seems to be consistent with that even to this day. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And some of that was natural. It was what Sean and I cared about. Some of that was from our, our IDEO roots. A lot of it was from the nature of the intervention, which is, you know, you got to convince somebody at the end of the, at the kind of at the end of a rope, you could say, you got to convince somebody that, to actually make changes to their daily life. And if you're going to do that, you have to be pretty obsessed about the quality of the experience and the relevance that they feel of that design experience in, in their daily life. I also think we did a lot of hard work over the years. It came naturally to us, but we realized early how important it was to obsess about the user, you know, consider the customer carefully, but really obsess about the user. And in a B2B2C business model, that's really tricky because of course you also have to obsess about your customer a lot. But if you can obsess about your enterprise customer through the lens of confident influence, on the user, you can end up in a really good position. And what helped Omada in that respect is that our business model, you know, directly aligns with our mission statement. And I don't say that lightly. I think that's really, really challenging for a lot of businesses to do. And in our case, we're pricing on engagement and outcomes. And so the better that somebody did in our program, the better an individual did in our program, the more we would get paid. And the better they did, the more money we would save to the enterprise buyer. And so everything was nicely aligned in that respect. And we felt like the dedication we could put on the individual experience on the participant and, and, the, and the member in our program, that that would all, that dedication would provide kind of a ripple effect return on investment through the full company. You had mentioned earlier about some advice you had been given, and, and I'm sure you and Sean were given lots lots of advice. And now you, as a, as a person who provides advice to a range of other startups, maybe give us a couple of examples of good advice you received, but equally 
maybe some bad advice that you hopefully ignored, but would still be interested in hearing some of the bad advice that you got. For sure. I mean, we got a ton of bad advice. I think the, <laughs> the general form of bad advice is very strong and specific advice from a totally different context or very strong and specific advice where if you peel the onion behind that advice, it turns out that somebody got hurt or that somebody got injured in, in a figurative sense. They got, they got injured or hurt or disillusioned. And without really knowing, they've wrapped it in all these layers and now they proffer it as advice to the, to the world around them. I feel like everyone is an expert on their unique past, but they're not great at calculating the relevance of that past to a new situation. And as I mentioned, you know, when they've been slighted or burned, then those old feelings die hard. So when, when, when being offered advice, I would always just try to s stare. I mean, again, figuratively, not, really, not stare at them awkwardly, but I would kind of <laughs> stare into them. I would, I would think to myself, where are they coming from? Is all this information they're giving us, is it coming from them, you know, or is it coming from what we've just told them? If, and if they had been listening carefully and they had really heard what we were saying, and then they gave us advice, I thought, okay, I'm going to listen more closely to that. So one of the bits of advice I think would qualify as bad advice was what I would call the shortcut category or the take shortcuts category of advice. And this is when you'd be pitching an investor or a potential investor and they would say, wow, well, guys, if you just do this, you know, and this plus this, you could turn the crank and, you know, make money even faster. And it always felt like almost every time we tried to take some shortcut, it didn't work. And pretty soon we stopped, we stopped trying to do that. And in fact, I remember the, the counter to that is a, a series of just fantastic essays by Paul Graham. Those were a major source of inspiration and good advice for us in the early days. We get on Paul Graham's, you know, YC Combinator founder, we get on his essays site and we would just start reading Paul Graham essays. One of them, for example, says, you know, if you're a small, nimble person and you're being chased by like a big bully and you hit a stairwell, what's your decision? Do you go down the stairs or do you go up the stairs? It's like you go down the stairs and they'll, go, they'll run just as fast as you do. But if you go up the stairs, take the harder choice, you have a better chance at outrunning them. And we would often think about that example. Sometimes we'd laugh about it when things were tough. And we would say, you know what, let's make the harder decision here and take the harder path and just dig in. I think another piece of good advice, I think this one came from John Sakota at NEA. He had watched us pitch and we were describing the intended design of our first pilot study. And he looked at us and he said, guys, is it possible that you're overcomplicating the design of the study? You know, in a very diplomatic way. And we said, well, what do you mean? Like we have all these important goals. And he said, guys, you have one goal. The study has to work. You need to design whatever you're designing and getting out there to your pilot participants. It has to be good enough that it really works. And if it works, then you'll be able to make it to the next milestone, which is raising more money. And if it doesn't work, then all these other outcomes that you're trying to design into the study are completely irrelevant. And to me, what I took away from that, very extensible advice, what I took away from that is just one milestone at a time. And that's what I, what I, when I'm giving advice these days to founders, I have them work back from 18 months, you know, look at the 18 month horizon, work back. What is the most significant milestone that you need to hit in the next three months? You know, and, and ask yourself, is the whole company aligned around, around that? Um, so there are a lot of other examples, but I think those are some, some of the highlights from the, from the best and worst categories. That's great. Um, the last point is all about focus again, isn't it? As you mentioned before. So the, what was just one thing, if you can boil it down to one, what was one of the things you were the most proud of after all this time and the journey that you had with Amada and Sean and your team? Well, what I've noticed, especially now, you know, I, Omada is, it's been 13 years since we started the company. And a few months ago, we crossed the threshold of a million members. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, I have to soak that in. You know, a million people felt 
impossible when we were getting started. But then I didn't, even though it mattered to me, it didn't feel like very much. And I was thinking what really felt most significant to me over the years of building Omada were very, very specific, very singular human stories from our members. Didn't have to do with necessarily with weight loss or with clinical outcomes, but there was some story that made me feel like that person had gone through a transformation, like a true life transformation, a cognitive reframing of who they are in the world and what they can be in the world, what their potential is. And you can imagine over the years, there were a number of those stories. I think of them as stories of self-efficacy improvement. I remember one, this, this gentleman that I had helped coach in the early days was talking to me about being in a safe way. And he said, he walked up, he had his card and he walked up to the checkout line and looked at the person in front of them. And as he watched the person in front of him take items out of the cart and put them onto the little conveyor belt, he thought, what is that? It's not food. What are they doing? What are they doing? What are they buying? Where are they going to put that? Are they going to put that you know, into their body? That's not food. And I thought, yes, <laughs> that's better. <laughs> that's better than if you had told me you had lost 30 pounds, right? Because you, you're thinking about your life differently and the world differently and you're processing some banal, you know, mundane daily experience in this whole new way. You've clearly had some wake up experience, you know, through the Omada program. And maybe that will open up some totally new part of your life and some totally new path ahead of you that, that may not even involve your health for all I know, but your brain has been changed in some important way. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's, let's transition away from Omada for the last question. So I know that you, uh, one of your big focuses now is a passion for food system reform. And I'm deeply curious as to what that is. So maybe give us an overview of both what it is and then what, you, what you're planning to do or how you'd like to play a role within that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's actually a great segue from the last question because you may have heard the statistic, but 73% of the food supply in the U.S. is ultra-processed. And so if you're thinking about it, clearly I would say, well, that's really not even food or we shouldn't classify it as food. We're feeding ourselves total crap and it's killing us. And there, there was a study in Lancet last year, two years ago, that attributed half a million excess deaths annually to obesity. And you could think about the amount of human suffering caused by this completely preventable factor. It just drives me totally crazy. And to be honest, this was part of the fuel for starting the company. You know, back to your very first question, one of the catalysts, you know, in starting Omada was just a newfound interest and almost obsession about food and the power of nutrition. And I'd been reading all these books at IDEO about the power of nutrition. And I just, I think forward 30 years or so, and I, and I just, I like to sit back and reflect. I think, well, our grocery stores still look like the way they do. Will we still be spending so much money and the vast majority of our healthcare dollars on preventable chronic diseases? And, you know, I really hope that that's not the case. And I look at examples the way we used to think about smoking or drunk driving or seat belts, these issues that the industry likes to call personal responsibility, but that are actually issues of, of society and re require a societal response. And, you know, the first parts of that response seem slow and they may actually run counter to what people think that they want. They may seem like, you, know, you can imagine the expressions like nanny state and big government and all the ways that people initially resist policy being involved in their decision making. But then all of a sudden it starts moving more quickly. And then the past starts seeming weird. You know, we'll explain to our kids, hey, kids, guess what? It used to be legal to market toxic food-like substances to children. And they'll look at us, they'll say, wait, are you serious? That was legal? You could do that? 
you know, so I like thinking about that. That's my own method of kind of reframing it in my head, start trying to keep a very clear perspective, a very, a very confident, almost overconfident perspective in the power that we all have to change. And when I can do that in my, in my head, which is kind of what I did in the early days of Omada, then it gives me the energy to tackle really big, complicated things, you know, like our food system. And I don't yet know exactly how I'll engage with, with work in food system reform. I'm really fascinated by regenerative agriculture. I could also see myself working in food policy or advocacy. I'm still in the phase where I'm, I'm trying to be very intellectually honest. I'm just sitting back. I'm trying to make sure I have a good grasp on how the major levers and, and cogs and gears in the system work together so that when I decide to put my time and energy into a particular focus area, that that focus area can kind of generate a good return on, on the time and the energy and the money. Uh, well, I, for one, am hopeful that a person with your optimism, problem-solving skills, kind of passion to make things better will be able to have a comparable impact on the food system that, that you and the Amada team has had on how we care for people with chronic conditions. So it's nice to see that that's where you're shifting your focus. I always like to see people who are successful pick up the next challenge and kind of apply what they've learned to make things better in a different area, particularly in this one, one that's related to obviously the, the vision and the mission that, that you guys have pursued for the last 13 years with Omada. Adrian, thank you so much for your time. I think as, as obvious by our questions, we've always been incredibly impressed with what Omada set out to do and ultimately accomplished and the role that you and the team played within that. And we are incredibly appreciative that you were able to spend almost an hour with us on a busy Thursday. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you both. I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm.